we're going to one last time uh, take a look at the gospel according to John. We're going to be in the last chapter, chapter 21, and we're just looking at a snippet of a conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, particularly one conversation that is found in verse 15 through through 18 of Jesus' conversation with Peter. But to give you a broader context, I'm going to back up all the way to verse 4 and read from there. Uh, Jesus has uh, been risen, raised from the dead, and he's uh, spending time with his disciples over 40 days at different times. And this is one of those times. Verse 4 of John's Gospel, chapter 21. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in. Because of the quantity of fish, the disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus had revealed to his disciples after he was uh, raised from the dead. Here's the part that I want us to focus on this morning. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Lawrence. Uh, Peters is famous for developing a management theory called the Peter Principle. He observed in business that people were often promoted based on past performance in their current roles. 
rather than the abilities that are necessary for the new job. In fact, that observation became this principle. Managers rise to the level of their incompetence. That's not only true about managers. That's true about salesmen. It's true about teachers. It's true about business leaders. It's it's true about preachers. This morning, I want to talk to you about a different Peter principle. A principle that, if applied, can heal the wounds that either have been inflicted on us or we have inflicted on others. What would you be willing to pay for that kind of a healing? Let me tell you, here's the good news, and then I'll give you the bad news. The good news is it's free. No insurance necessary. No uh, a co-deductible required. But here's the bad news. This medicine hurts. It's painful. In fact, often the deeper the wound, the greater the pain that is involved in the healing. We can observe in this conversation that Jesus has with Peter this principle. I think it's important to understand that it's not meant to be an occasion in which we practice this principle. It was meant to be part of the daily life of a Christian rather than when everything gets out of control. Let's go back in order to, in order for you to appreciate and see the principle, go back to its context in chapter 13. Jesus has another conversation, not just with Peter, but all of his disciples, but it's Peter who keeps speaking up. In chapter 13, Jesus has been telling his disciples that he's going to die for them, that he's going to die for many as a ransom for sins. He tells them that he's going to go away to a place they cannot go. And so Peter responds by, where are you going? And Jesus says, I'm going where you cannot follow. And Peter says, why can I not follow you? And then Peter makes this incredible, emphatic embarrassing statement. I will lay down my life for you. Even if everyone else fails you, I will not fail you. Jesus responds to that emphatic with no qualifications with this. Peter, will you lay your life down for me? No, in fact, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. That is, before dawn, Peter, before tomorrow, you're going to deny our relationship and you're going to abandon me. All you have to do to see this played out is go five chapters to chapter 18. The very thing that Peter says he would not do, he does. The very thing that Jesus says he will do, he does. 
in chapter 18. Jesus has been arrested. He's being tried first by the chief priest and then later by Pilate. Peter's following along in the shadows, staying close to Jesus. You think that he's he's staying by his side so he won't fail him. But when the moment comes, some little girl comes up to Peter and says, Are you not one of his disciples? And Peter says, it's recorded for us, I am not. I want you to hold on to that because a little later we're going to hear from Peter what he really said. Not John's gracious depiction of what Peter said. Later, while Peter is warming himself by an open fire, we're... Jesus' guards are also warming themselves. One of them notices him and says, Are you not one of of this man's disciples? And Peter again says, I am not. A third time. This time it's a relative of the man Peter lopped off an ear back in the garden where Jesus had been praying, where he was arrested. And this relative of the man who lost his ear turns to Peter and said, Did I not see you in the garden? And Peter denies he was there. And then the rooster crows. Dawn happens. And it says in chapter 18 that Jesus looked at Peter. And then it says Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. What is all that? What we're witnessing is the wounding of Peter. Self-inflicted. But it is a wound of his own sin. Peter, at his moment of crisis, the moment where he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'll not deny you. I'm willing to die for you. When that moment comes, his soul is laid bare for all to truly see. And that is of a coward. Doomed to lead a completely haunted life unless, unless there's a healing. He's Humpty Dumpty where all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put him back together again. But who can? Who can heal a heart wound? Even if it is self-inflicted. Now we're ready for chapter 21 because it's the rest of that conversation. It's the rest of the story. We see Jesus healing Peter of this mortal wound. Many of us in this room have heart wounds. I can't say all because I don't know everyone's heart. I can only know my own. And some of us are even defined like Peter by the wound. And so the Peter principle can heal you. The Peter principle can heal me. This Peter principle in the Bible has a name. It's called repentance. Many, many of us tend to view repentance as something when it is all messed up. Martin Luther When he tacked on the 95 Theses on Wittenberg's door, the first argument that he made against the church 
that repentance wasn't occasionally for the bad people. He says all of the Christian life is to be one of repentance. That's very different, isn't it? I want you to know that repentance is is a little more than we tend to think it is or want it to be. I want to give it to you in four steps, and this is the closest you're going to ever get from me giving you a four-step sermon. But because this conversation comes this way, I'm going to give it to you this way. In four very large, very important steps. The first step, Jesus has to open Peter up. Secondly, Jesus has to find the tumor that's causing all of the symptoms that everyone has noticed, including Peter himself. Third, Jesus has to remove that tumor. And then fourth, he replaces it with something better. Think of it this way. The very first step is that you and I have to take ownership of our sin. And then secondly, we have to understand what's behind it, what's underneath it, what causes that particular manifestation, behavior in our lives. That's called unmasking it. The third is how do you how do you deal with that? How do you bring healing to that? Well, that comes through grieving. And then fourth, it is supposed to produce not pain and hurt, but joy. With that in mind, let's look at this gracious violence that Jesus perpetrates on Peter in the opening conversation. I say gracious violence because I'm trying to bring these oxymoronic words together. We don't tend to think of gracious and violence going together. Maybe you would better receive them as severe mercy. Two more words that don't tend to go together. That is that something has to hurt in order to heal hurt. We don't tend to think of it that way, do we? One of the ways that I've tried to express this is that God's intention for us in order to be healed is for it to hurt like heaven rather than hell. What I mean by that is that heaven hurts more than hell can because heaven wants us to change. Hell just wants us to stay the same. And so it doesn't inflict pain until the end. After Jesus' resurrection, he kept showing up for 40 days after his resurrection in order to teach his disciples, prepare them for him going, his ascension. Our text opens with one of those conversations, one of those appearings. Some of the disciples have returned to their previous professions. They've given up hope that the movement is over. And one of that for John and James and Nathaniel and Peter is to go back and fish. Not for leisure, but for work. And it's there that Jesus shows up. But they haven't caught anything. They're tired and they're discouraged and they're disappointed. But 
not because they have empty nets, at least not merely, but they have empty lives because their leader is gone. The movement has died. They're tired and they're discouraged and they're disappointed. But what does Jesus do? He shows up and he makes them breakfast. Don't underestimate the gift of breakfast. The most important meal of the day. But Jesus turns in verse 15 to Peter and says, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Why is he bringing this up now? Doesn't he... Doesn't he see Peter's hurting? Can't he understand? Doesn't he just see that all he's going to do is rake up all of these emotions all again? Why is Jesus choosing to hurt Peter? Because healing Peter, you know, he could have done this. He could have said, Peter, you denied me. You lied. You abandoned me. You were unfaithful. I'm moving on. But he makes him breakfast. And he wants Peter to take responsibility. Because diminishing responsibility diminishes our humanity. And we will never know freedom and joy without repentance. That's only step one. He cuts And it hurts. And you're right. If this is all repentance is, then it is terrible. And no one should do it. But it is more than this. But that is where it always begins. You don't just take responsibility, do you? You have to unmask what's underneath the behavior. You have to discover what's behind the behavior. Don't settle for stopping bad behavior. Let me give you two important reasons why stopping at this surface level is not repentance. It might be the beginning of repentance, but it is not repentance. The first is... Because you don't need Christ to stop bad behavior. Millions and millions of people do it every day all over this planet without ever knowing Jesus' name. Lots of alcoholics stop drinking without Jesus. Lots of drug addicts are no longer drug addicts without Jesus. Lots of liars stop lying without Jesus. Lots of greedy IRS cheaters start paying their taxes without Jesus. You don't need Jesus to stop bad behavior. Secondly, even if you could stop it without Jesus, without going deeper, seeing what's behind, underneath, it'll probably just keep showing up somewhere else in some other behavior. Unless this root is exposed. And this is why it hurts. This is the kind of search that will hurt more than merely stopping. 
I want to show you something in this text that is profoundly amazing. I told you what what Peter had done. He lied. He denied. He ran. He abandoned. Jesus doesn't bring any of those up. You notice that? He doesn't once. Peter, you're a liar. Stop lying. Peter, you're unfaithful. Stop being unfaithful. Be more faithful. Peter, you've been bad. Be good. He didn't say that one time. It's not because Jesus makes light of bad behavior. It's not because he's excusing bad behavior. It's because it's already in the conversation. It's been on Peter's mind since Jesus looked at him. And he went out and he grieved. He wept wept bitterly. You see, Peter, this is Jesus, goes on. Do you love me more than these? What an odd question to ask. Not for Peter. Because Jesus isn't merely exposing what led to those surface behaviors that were sinful. He wants Peter to see that the cause of that is going to keep eating as his life unless he begins to deal with the root cause. And in Peter's case, it's all of these. Do you love me more than these? He's talking about the other disciples. Because Peter believes that he wants to be greater than all of these. He wants to be known as the leader. Peter is the most impetuous. He's the one that when Jesus asks a question, who do they say I am? It's Peter who says on behalf of the disciples, they say you're a prophet. And then Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus responds upon this rock, I'll build my church. But it's Peter over and over again is the guy who when Jesus asks a question, he's first because Peter wants to be first. At the core of Peter's problem is pride. Humility, that is a lack thereof, has deeply wounded him. That has shown up in so many other ways. Jesus is graciously, patiently, kindly, mercifully unmasking what's underneath. Jesus wants Peter and us to see the ugliness of sin, not just stopping behavior. And that's step two. This can't be an academic exercise for us. I got these four steps down. Next time my spouse blows it, I've got ammunition. That's a misunderstanding. It's not for them. It's for you. It's for me. It has to become an impersonal experience for it to do a work in your heart. Friends of mine have pointed out my own tendencies. I am defensive. I hide. I protect myself. 
And when pushed into a corner, I will impugn the other person in order to be free. Why do I have those tendencies, those sins? Unmasking has begun to allow me to see how shame and fear motivate and create these kinds of tendencies. Stopping the behavior will not change my heart. And it will not change yours. It does take time for this kind of healing. One of the hardest parts of being a Christian in the United States is time. We're not very patient. Not because we don't want to be. We want everyone patient with us. It has to do with being patient with others. You and I live in a culture that we go to the mall and we expect to have dinner in under a couple of minutes. We expect the person coming over to fix whatever is broken at our house to be done within the hour because we've got something else to do. We're so committed to fix it, we think it can always be fixed quickly. Jesus doesn't have that perspective because he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end, and he's every point in between. He sees you as you will be, not as you are. Because you are the righteousness of Christ. You are the bride of Christ for whom he loves. And that's what love does. It doesn't see you as you are. It sees you as you will be. Step three, if the first step is cutting you open, and we know that's not fun, we know that the second step can be even more painful because you have to find the cause, the root, what's beneath the behavior. This third step is to remove that tumor, and the only way I know how to do that, at least our text shows us, is through grief. Are you having fun yet? It's not for me. Jesus asked this question a third time. Do you love me? How does Peter respond? After the third time? Peter was grieved, verse 17, because he said to him a third time, do you love me? That third time is where he's wondering, Jesus, do you think I don't love you? Jesus isn't wondering if there's a love there. It's the order of the love. Do you love me more than these? This sounds so hard, so painful. Who in the world, in their right mind, would want to try it? Wounded people who have tried everything else. The Bible talks about grief in two ways. And they bring, Paul brings them both together in 2 Corinthians 7. In verse 10, he says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul is saying you can either grieve over yourself and what your sin cost you, or you can grieve over what your sin caused Christ. 
which becomes the very medicine that heals. Because it is Jesus, just a couple of chapters ago, said, it is finished. Don't you think Peter's getting the message now? That the very thing that Jesus said he would do, he did. And he said it before the cross. He said it before the cross. Because the cross covered his lying. He covered his abandonment. He covered his pride. But in order for joy to come in, he has to see that Jesus died for that too. It is finished. This is the only thing that removes the control of the wound from your life. How? It's demonstrated in those two texts. The first text is when... when when Peter's asked, are you his disciple? And Peter runs away from Jesus. The second one is here. When John tells Peter that it's Jesus cooking breakfast, Peter puts his clothes on and runs toward Jesus. How can this be the same Peter? It's not It's not the same Peter. One of my favorite stories about Augustine is Augustine lived an incredibly debauched life. He frequented prostitutes. And after he had become a believer, a follower of Jesus, one of the prostitutes that he had a relationship said, Augustine, Augustine, is it you from across the street? And Augustine says, it is not I. How can he say that? That's what Paul says. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed, the new has come. That's what Peter is getting here. That's what he's understanding. Jesus did not come to be our teacher. He came to be our Savior. And those are very different things. Lastly, he replaces the thing that wounded Peter with something better. Joy. When Peter has the opportunity to tell his own story about what happened, about his abandonment, about his lying, about his running, we get that in Mark's gospel. John Mark was not one of the apostles. He became eventually one of the men that Peter mentors. When Mark writes the very first gospel that is recorded for us, he got his information from Peter. So when we get to the story of of Jesus being arrested and, and Peter following along and some little girl coming up to Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? We get Peter's words, not gracious John's words. Peter says, I'm not a follower of his, and may I be damned if I am. A lot stronger than I am not. Here's a man who can remember his past without pain. A man who probably enjoys thinking about it. How can that be? Because it shows the greatness of the grace of God toward him. That neither shame or guilt 
is hidden in his heart because he's not that man anymore. Here is somebody who has been healed and that healing has now become a source of joy. Kind of like scars on the body. I want that kind of healing. Don't you? One of the verses that I've been clinging to the past few weeks is from Psalm 51, verse 8. It says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. When I was young, Evil Knievel was very popular in our country. He was jumping things and teaching little kids they can do it too. Not meaning to, he just was an incredible example on a motorcycle. We weren't jumping on motorcycles, I was too young. We were jumping on bicycles. We were setting up ramps about this tall and far apart. The idea was to keep getting them further and further apart to see how far our bikes could jump and how fast we would have to go to do it. I remember on this one particular jump, it's kind of like sometimes your eyes are too big for the food that is in front of you. I had them pretty spread out. We built these things out of plywood so they were pretty tough to handle a bike kick and land. Well, it was about midway when you recognize how far you're actually going to make it. You think that that's not going to happen to you geometry people. You think you're going to figure that out on your land. I figured it out at the apex that I was not going to reach the other one. Actually, I was going to reach it, but I was only going to reach it with the front tire. And so what happened is I came tumbling over and over and I broke my right arm. And I did not want to tell my mom that I had broken my arm. So for three weeks... I hid the fact that I had a broken arm. I, I couldn't turn my arm more than so. After a while, I had to go tell her. She began to notice that I couldn't do things with this arm or wouldn't do things with this arm. And so she takes me to the hospital, the emergency room, and, and the doctor takes x-rays. Yeah, 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 you broke it. But here's the bad news. It started to heal Badly. I'm going to have to re-break it. In all of my 10-year-old rebellion, no, you're not. Because <laughs> it hurt the first time. Then he uses all of his medical doctor knowledge and says, well, there was an 8-year-old in here a couple of days ago, and he didn't even cry when I rebroke his arm. <laughs> I said, that's great. So he says, I'll tell you what. What I'll do is I just want to feel your arm where the break is. Nobody said I was smart. So I let him have the right arm and he, and he, he takes his two thumbs and he's feeling around. Is this it? And it still hurts. Still tender there. And you could hear it snap when he pushed his two thumbs on where it was already weak. But that's what has to happen. For there to be a healing. I can do this because he broke my bone. That is the only way you and I, you and me, our hearts are ever going to be healed. Is that we have to allow God to break our bones. Where they have mended wrongly. 
I want you to understand that Peter from here didn't have all of cakes and snow cones. In fact, Jesus gives the hint in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He's describing Peter's death. Peter becomes one of the greatest preachers. Just check out Acts 2 and 3. One time he preaches and 3,000 people come to know the Lord. The next time he preaches and 5,000 people believe and are baptized. Incredible revival going on in the early church. But I want you to know that repentance doesn't mean that you wouldn't frequent the same sin. Not in this life. It's not long before Peter, who's not the pastor in Jerusalem, but wants to go up to Antioch where all the new believers are coming to Christ. All this amazing work among Gentiles. So he goes up there and when he's up there, this is all recorded for us in Galatians 3. When he goes up there, he notices that Gentiles don't have the dietary rules that Jews did. And so he begins to eat what Gentile Christians are eating. Things that Jewish Christians weren't doing down in Jerusalem. And he did that until a group of people came up from Jerusalem, up to Antioch. And these were Peter's friends, or at least knew Peter. And so he stopped. And Paul had to say, in in Galatians 3, I had to confront him to his face. And it says that, Peter, your life is out of step with the gospel you believe and you proclaim. Why did Peter begin to eat which was free? He's the one that had the vision that all this is now good to eat. Why did Peter eat and then stop eating? The very same thing that Jesus said. Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter's pride, lack of humility. Those wounds come right back to the surface for him. And Paul, being a, a brother, comes to him and says... Here's the same kind of behavior. You need to bring your life back in step with the gospel. I want so much for me and for you and for our church to experience this kind of renewal that only comes through repentance. If this kind of renewal happens in the preacher's heart and in the people's heart, it will happen in our city too. You don't have to worry about the renewal of Annapolis if we are being renewed. May that be our prayer, that God would renew us, beginning with the preacher. Because if the preacher's heart's changed and the people's hearts are changed, then the city's heart will change too. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this snippet of a story that you allowed us to have and to see the gospel at work in someone's life that gives us hope that it can happen in our life too. And I pray for the patience and the kindness and the mercy for all of us for one another as we go through this process of repentance. Not once in a while, but all the time. That it becomes the web and flow of who we are and how we relate because no one 
No one's heart is truly changed without you. And so we pray you change my heart, the heart of our people, and the heart of our city. In Jesus' name, amen.